welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, this morning we're going to reach uh, chapter 8 and 9, really, of 2 Corinthians. And uh, we're going to kind of treat those two chapters as a whole in the next few weeks, because they're really talking about the same subject matter. You see, the first seven chapters of this book, Paul has been addressing the, the conflict that was happening between him and the church. Uh, he was making sure that they understood his heart, they understood his mother, because there was some, some stress and some harsh, harsh things that were said. But he's making sure that that relationship has been attended to, that has been understood in terms of understanding his heart and love for them. And, and we saw it really when he's explaining what it means to be a new covenant minister. And again, that new covenant minister applies not just to, to special quote unquote people like pastors and missionaries and evangelists and such, but it applies to the body of Christ. Every single one of us is a minister. Amen, Tim? Amen. Because he's saying, Tim, take him in. Well, when we get to chapter 10 onwards, we're going to see Paul addressing those people that were causing that conflict, that were causing all that stress and strain. But in between those, those two sections, in chapter 89, Paul's addressing one specific issue, one specific topic, and that's money, specifically David. Now, here in New Life, we don't talk a lot about money. Uh, I know some churches that every week they have a little mini sermon that happens while an offering plate or offering basket because the basket is bigger than the plate. Uh, it has to run us. That's a great idea. That's a good uh, And so I have this little mini sermon in order to maximize offering, maximize the city. I, I, remember, I remember growing up uh, reading church bulletins. Right? Anyone remember church bulletins? Yeah. I just need your old. All right. So I remember reading church bulletins. They would post in there. I, I'm old too. So um, they would post in there last week's giving. And when I saw that in some church, they had last week's giving, they had your today giving, and then the difference between that and the budget. And it was always under budget, right? They're always needing more money. And that's why they put it in the bulletins to try to spur that giving on. I remember why. Well, again, we don't talk a lot about money. In fact, last time I had a look at last time we talked about money specifically was pretty much four years ago today. It was right near the beginning when we started the life. And in part of that is because when you're going verse by verse through the book, uh, through different letters, the, the topic is chosen for you. You're simply going to teach on that topic that is presented. And so I haven't really had an opportunity to do so. But on the other side of it, I'm also a little sensitive when it comes to talking, talking about the topic of money because I'm aware of how many people have been hurt by it in the past. Here's a, a couple of quotes that I found this week that I think are interesting. The first one says, There's nothing in the world so demoralizing as money. It changes all the best impulses into the worst. It turns honesty into hypocrisy. It transforms love into hate and truth into lies. It affects every relationship, every friendship, every situation. It obscures the truth and magnifies the other reason. It creates greed, envy, jealousy, and all the vices that destroy our better nature. Then another quote talk about money, it changes all values, creates hypocrisy, destroys the money dealing, and makes men and women alike cowards. It's not what we're Both of those 
quotes are over 100 years old. And nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And, and I wish I could stand here and say, but thank God the church has come along and the church has figured it out. And the church has never struggled on top of it. But that would be a bold face lie. I mean, ever since the church, in around 300 AD, ever since the church became illegal, in a sense that out of the 300, roughly 312 AD, you could literally or legally uh, beat up raw a Christian, and the authorities would say, you deserved it. You had to come. Uh, but then Constantine uh, converted around 312 AD, and suddenly Christianity became not just illegal, but it was beneficial. It was now beneficial in order to be part of the church. And so ever since then, uh, people have been using their church as a means to gain power and gain money to that, uh, or gain money to lease that power. In fact, it got to the point where the Reformation was largely a part uh, or result of the church, kind of church selling indulgences. So an indulgence was that basically you could sin, you could do all kinds of horrible things, but if you were wealthy enough and you left a good portion of your estate and your money to Catholic Church, you could buy your way into heaven. Right? Think of it as the precursor to the carbon tax, right? That idea that it's okay. I went there, I know. I couldn't resist. It was low right? And, and so we, we see that. I mean, it was, again, the Reformation was a large part of Boston. But we see countless evangelists and ministries that have simply used uh, the gospel to enrich themselves. Some have just been fraud and slaughtered stolen from these ministries. Uh, others, they use it in order to accumulate private, right? Mass homes, private jets. I mean, I saw one TV evangelist, his appeal was, I need a new private jet. Not a private jet, no, no, I need another one, a new one. Because you don't want a man of God flying with this poor man's private jet, do you? And so that's what he was using, this for one offering they gave And so the list is very, very long, very long of how people have uh, abused this topic for their own gain and their own wealth. And so I'm very much aware that when I talk about money for people, there's, there's often a, 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 mis, a, a jaded mistrust. And I think that's well deserved. I think that's well understood. And so um, we're going to try and talk about this morning in light of that. Because you see, not talking about money is equally as bad as talking about money all the time. And it's important, I think, that we understand what God's view is on money. Because the reality is, money plays an integral role in all our lives. I mean, I think, I think money's existed pretty much since soon after the fall. Right? In the beginning of Genesis 4, it talks about the descendants of Cain, and he lists three of his descendants, three of those, those uh, uh, great, great son, grandsons in there. And since one was basically a farmer, the other was basically a, a blacksmith, uh, someone who worked in metal, and the other was basically an artist. And, and the three of them would basically work together. Welcome, Mark. It's good to have you. I told a lot of funny jokes. <laughs> <laughs> that laughter is just the leftover laugh after reading the jokes. I still like people in the house. Still not going through. All right, let's keep going. So, ever since those three descendants of Cain, what was happening is basically they would begin to barter. And that was the first forms of money, the sense of bartering. 
where basically the farmer would offer maybe vegetables and some cattle to, to the blacksmith. The blacksmith would maybe offer some metallurgy to the artists and so forth, and they would trade that for the barbecue. But eventually, the reason why when the farmers like, I don't need something from the artist right now, but I need something from the blacksmith. And so they needed something to go in between, something common. This currency, money, where basically the, the farmer could, uh, sorry, the, the artist could buy something from the farmer, but the farmer could go buy it from the blacksmith. And so the earliest currency was seashells. They go mining for seashells, I guess, right? And so then these particular, very pretty seashells, and that became the initial currency, and then eventually it was replaced with, with uh, gold and diamonds and silver and copper, and it would be based on, based on the, the weight of it. But then eventually, over time, the government, the kings, basically, the emperor, we begin to issue his own currency. They would often stand his own image, stand his own face on that. We see that big slab, right? The, the penny that has the queen's face on it, or the loonies, right? That sense of that they're standing their, their image on it, it becomes now of value. Because eventually, what happens is the government begins to issue uh, currency. And those coins became paper notes. And then those paper notes now basically been replaced with digital currency. Like I don't often walk around cash anymore for anyone thinking of robbing me. I don't have much cash at all because it's basically you tap your way through things, right? You're cutting hard at it, interact, and so forth. But nowadays, you know, you've got Bitcoin and digital currency, like cryptocurrency, which is even a tax for you to take the government. So it's interesting. We've gone from seashells to one securities. Kind of the history of money right there. And the reality is, though, money is always going to be around. We saw it in, in Genesis 4 with the king, we see it in Genesis 12 with Abraham, talking about the gold and silver ones at the end. And so money's not going anywhere. And as much as Sean wishes that Star Trek would come you know, the reality is he's okay, money doesn't exist, it's always going to be around. It's always going to be an issue. And therefore, we need to understand what is God's perspective on because if we don't understand God's perspective on it, then money's going to either control you and master you, or it will just ruin you again. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that this morning that we be able to understand your role. That we understand what's happening. That we can understand and grasp this concept of what it means to trust you, what it means to find life in you when it comes to this issue of finance and money. We recognize how many people are quiet, many people have used this issue to, to, to group, agree and their own benefit and gain. That's not my heart to do, Lord. Yeah. And so we're going to trust the Lord Jesus to provide freedom, provide life in this area. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I, I did some quick research. Uh, I did not count all this, but there's roughly 2,350 verses in all of the Old Testament that reference money. That's roughly seven and a half verses, uh, all verses, seven and a half verses, talk about it. When you get to the New Testament, that number actually increases with 10%. So I don't know if they're tied to that point, but nonetheless, it's 10% from Matthew Revelation to talking about this issue of money. And I hear these stats most often from financial planners or financial coaches that are wanting to encourage people. Do I need one of these? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so this is this is hand money. This is one. Welcome online. <laughs> <laughs> so I hear, I hear this 
to uh, kind of use the Bible as a way to, to map out how you would use your money, spend your money. And, and sometimes we hear it almost as if like the Bible solely exists to be a financial guy. That like God wants to be your financial planner, and that was his end goal and all of his all of his, his ultimate dream and all of this. And I don't think that's the case. I do think the Bible has a lot to say about money. But I think the heart of the money, the heart of the issue about money, that, that the references or the verses they're using to are using it often as an example, as an illustration. So, for example, when Jesus talks about the lost coin, that would be ticky. He talked about money. But it's not about money. He simply used that as a parable, as an illustration, because most people understand the value and concept of money. But the point that he's trying to say is the value of what happens when that lost coin is found. And who's the lost coin? It's a lost sheep. It's an unbeliever. It's someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. And so what happens when someone comes to faith in Jesus, when that lost coin is found? What did Jesus say? So the party goes off in heaven. And the excitement and the joy and the thrill that comes as a result of all that. Now, that's not to say the Bible doesn't have good advice when it comes to money. It does. It has a lot to say about how to, how to make money, how to, how to earn money, how to gain money, how to manage that money. Right? It talks about, for example, watch the ant and how hard the ant works and, and learn from the ant. And, and so it talks about that. But it also talks about how to lose money. There's passages about how a fool and his wealth are soon separated. Whether it be gambling to get rich quick or whether addictions, needless shopping, spending to feel better, or even trying to buy your friends, eventually you'll lose your money all that way. Here's a funny poem. Money talks, I will not deny. I once heard it said, I'm going goodbye. Right? It's so quickly to spend money and it's gone. So what is it that God really wants us to know about money? Well, a most often misquoted verse is that money is the root of all evil. How many people have heard that verse? It's not what the verse says, though. Right? It's the love of money that is the root of all issue. See, it's not, it's not money in itself, but that endless pursuit, that, that idea that I'm going to find everything I need in finances, in money. That's, the, that's what it, uh, God's warning against, because eventually that corrupts. Eventually that leaves you with an empty, lean soul. In, uh, in Luke chapter 12, Luke captures this conversation that Jesus had with the crowds. He says, Luke 12, beginning verse 13. Let's turn to it. Beginning verse 13, it says, And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods. Lay up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now you all that you own, what have, and now who will own what you have prepared? 
so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, the money, it can, it can come and go. It can disappear in a moment. We've seen this in the last couple of weeks, right? With those bank failures that are happening in, in America and in Europe. And all of a sudden, very wealthy people, their balance sheets are wiped clean. And they've lost all kinds of money. It can disappear in a heartbeat. And even if you get to keep it to the moment you die, guess what happens? It's still gone. I mean, think about those pharaohs, how they stored up all that treasure and all that wealth and they decide they're going to take it with them into the afterlife. And so they created elaborate tombs in these pyramids with all kinds of protections and everything. And they were buried with their treasures. And guess what happened? Common thieves would come and loot it. You can't take it with you. It's gone in a moment. It's, it's pointless. It's purposeless. It gives you no real value. And, and so maybe the, the most important ma- uh, passage on money is found in Matthew chapter 6. So turn to Matthew chapter 6. And this is in the, in the parable, oh, sorry, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Listen to what Jesus warns and says. He says, do not lay for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your heart is, sorry, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then jumping down to verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, and he will hold on to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God in wealth. You can't serve God in money. You see, the issue isn't about your bank account. It isn't about money. Most certainly, God does not need your money. Amen? I mean, he owns a, a thousand cattle on all the hills. He's got it all. Everything in this universe belongs to him. He's the creator. He's the owner of it all. We're merely stewards of what we have. He doesn't need money. But you know what he wants? He wants our hearts. That's what he's after. And he says, if you're pursuing money, if you make that the the big deal, if you make that your goal and you pursue that, that will master you. Money will control you in terms of what you buy and what you save and how much you spend here and how much you invest for later. And and it will control all of your thoughts and it will master you. And you'll miss the bigger thing, which is Jesus and trusting in him. And so that's what he's after. That's what he wants. And yet much of the discussion within the church has sort of drifted into these two opposite poles. One is the prosperity gospel and the other is the social gospel. So here's the, basically the, the prosperity gospel, also known as the health, wealth, and, and prosperity. It's, it's not only about money. They talk about your physical health, and they talk about your, your influence and reach, but really, it always comes back to how much money you have. And so what ends up happening is this wealth and prosperity is seen as a sign of God's blessing on you. That the, the bigger your bank account, the more influence you have, clearly the more God's blessing you. But the less you have, the less that God's blessing you. And what does that mean? It means he's disappointed in you. It means you're not doing enough. And so really what happens in this prosperity gospel is it becomes all about you. It becomes all about how much faith you have, how much positive thinking you have, how good you are and how moral you are and how hard you're working. 
and often how much you're giving. Because that's also, also what ends up happening is that if, if you would only give more, then God would bless you more. It's just basically a good investment here that you give God something and he'll give you more. And they would even point to the people like Abraham and King David and King Solomon and point to their wealth. I've even heard them try to point to Jesus and say Jesus was a wealthy man because he had really, really expensive underwear. I'm not kidding you. That was the argument. That was the defense for it. But really, it's just a perversion of God's grace. Because the idea is that God will bless you in a response to what you're doing is not the gospel of grace. It's not how it works. See, in Ephesians 1.3, you don't have to look to turn to it right now, but Ephesians 1.3 says this, that you've already been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I always say that's a good news, bad news verse. Here's the bad news. Jody, there's no more spiritual blessings to come. They're gone. It's all, it's all been handed out. There's nothing left. The cupboard is bare. Here's the good news. Jody, you got everything you need in Jesus. You've already got Jesus. What else do you need to add to it? And it's been given to you by grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. He's yours. But this idea of this prosperity gospel is that somehow you don't have to work. You could strive and you could do more and then you'll be blessed. For the majority of people that ends up in guilt and shame. That ends up in failure and anger towards themselves. Why can't I do more? Why can't I get my act together? If I could only just be better at this. And there's so much guilt and there's so much shame and there's so much condemnation. But even worse, maybe they become angry and disappointed at God. God, I've been doing my part. I've been, I've been giving, I've been serving, I've been, I've been keeping my nose clean, I've, I've done everything, I've had enough faith, and you haven't come through. It's your fault. And now that anger and that bitterness turns on God, which poisons their faith, which poisons their trust. It's horrible. And it's a, it's a perversion of the gospel to the point where it's not the gospel at all. It's a false gospel. It's all about money. It's all about trying to get rich quick, where God basically becomes an ATM. Becomes a genie where I'm just going to go to him and make my wishes and he's going to bless me with what I want. But it's not about God. It's not about my heart. It's about really just trying to live the best life in this world. Storing up treasures in this world. That's all it is. So the other end, then we've got the other extreme, which is often referred to as the social gospel. The emphasis of the social gospel is about helping marginalized groups, helping the poor, uh, making sure that they too can share in the prosperity of others, which sounds good. Don't get me wrong. But what ends up happening now is that there is some kind of guilt and some kind of shame to be to have wealth yourself. That you're supposed to uh, become poor in order to help the poor. And so you have to give everything away. And anything you're holding on to is, is sort of somewhat sinful. To the point where poverty is seen as the ultimate form of holiness or righteousness. And again, teachers of this false gospel, they'd point to people like John the Baptist, who was living in the wilderness, who was living off of honey and locusts. See that poverty of John the Baptist. Or they'd even point to Jesus, how Jesus didn't have a home of his own, no bed of his own to lie his head down on. Which is interesting, right? Prosperity people, Jesus is the example. Social gospel, Jesus is the example. I think that's the clue that we're missing the point. You see, if poverty was somehow your holiness, then every person sleeping on a park bench would become holy. But that's not the pathway to holiness, is it? 
It's faith in Jesus. That's how we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith, not by grace through poverty. See, what's interesting is both gospels aren't really the gospel, by the way. Let me be clear. But the prosperity gospel and the social gospel, one is you need to get more money. The other is you got to give money away. But the gospel is about Jesus. It's about him. That's what the gospel is about. And what's interesting is in Proverbs 30, we're going to jump all over this morning. So find book of Proverbs. It's right after Psalms. So Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 8. The proverb is, keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. It's not about getting rich. It's not about being poor. That's not what it is. It's, it's, it's about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus and experiencing Jesus today. That's the gospel. That's the purpose. That I would trust him. 1 John 3.23 says that this is our commandment. This is, this is the simplicity of why you exist. To believe in Jesus. To trust him. Not just for salvation, but moment by moment, day by day. And to love others as you love yourself. That's your mission statement. It's simple. And it's not about money. Now, money's important though, right? Money plays a big part in our lives. But money in itself is not evil. And therefore, it's not wrong to be poor, but it's also not wrong to be rich. In fact, God has no problem with people who have a lot of money. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Beginning in verse 16, it says, in the, in the wilderness, he, speaking of God, fed you manna. That was the, the bread, right? The manna that would come down every day. He fed you manna, which our fathers did not know, that he, which our fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and my strength and my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as to this day. If you are a wealthy person, if you have a good sized bank account, and to be honest, if you live in North America, you're in the 1% of the world. Generally speaking, we are in the, in the, one of the richest times. I mean, we richer today than King Louis the 13th was. And he was widely regarded as one of the richest kings of all time. And you and I have more, more power, more abilities, um, more options than even he did in his day. So we're very wealthy. Does that mean we need to feel guilty about it? No, because guess what? God says he gave us the power to make that wealth. It's not about what you've done. It's not about how smart you are, or how hard you work. That ability came from who? It came from God. So apparently he has no problem with giving you the ability to make wealth. Or here's another passage. Go to First Chronicles. First Chronicles 29. This is the, the part of your Bible that if you're reading through the Bible in a year, if you got through Leviticus, you probably died here. <laughs> so First Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 12. This is, this is David's prayer. 
when they were uh, offering, making offerings to the temple. Beginning verse 12, he says, both riches and honors come from thee. Who's thee? From God. And thou, man, it sounds like I'm reading the King James here. And thou dost rule over it, and in thy hand is power and might. And it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thee like glorious name. But who am I? Who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from thee and from thy hand he have given thee. All that wealth came from God. And he has no problem blessing his children with wealth. He's not offended by that. He's not scared by that. And it's, there, again, there's no, no holiness in your poverty and having nothing. He's willing to bless people with riches. The mistake we would make, though, is that we would look at how wealthy you are as an indication of how much God loves you. That's not it at all. Because, you see, regardless of the size of your bank account, what it really comes down to isn't about money. It's about contentment. And you see, if I, I think if we're really honest, that's what we're all searching for. What we really want is the contentment. And what the world has said is, here's how you can get it. Nice home, $5 million in the bank account, nice and safe so that you're okay. Good investments so you'll be able to retire. Nice car, all the, the toys you could want. And then, then you'll be fine. Then you'll be all right. Well, you know what? People get there. And you know what they discover? It's not enough. That's the whole book of Ecclesiastes, by the way. King Solomon, the richest king of, of the day, had everything. And he says, I'm dying. It's pointless. It's vanity. Because nothing, nothing in this world will satisfy my soul. It doesn't work. But in Christ, and that was the lesson of Ecclesiastes, that he could find what he was looking for in God. And so for you and I, we can find contentment in him. Let's turn to 1 Timothy. Go back to the New Testament now. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and made many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, that endless pursuit of money, is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many a pang, with many griefs. See, the truth is, money can buy you companionship. It can buy you friends. It can buy you men and women and boyfriends and girlfriends and spouses. It can buy you companionship for a while. The problem is, though, you're always wondering, do they love me or do they love my money? And what happens when you run out of money? And often what happens is as soon as that money dries up, the friends disappear. Or money can buy you power. It can buy you security. It can buy you fame. It can't. I mean, the whole celebrity culture, that's what it's about. And, and people look to that and they idolize that and, and everyone wants to follow them on social media and so forth. And they get power and they get money and they get fame and a platform and everything. But you know what? It's not enough. It's not enough. 
And you can see the desperation in those people's eyes and the desperation in which they're trying to get more fame, more money, or at least keep it because they don't want to lose it. And no matter how much money you have, no matter how much power you have, it could all disappear overnight because it's all vain. So money can't buy contentment. In fact, we see it. The richest people in this world are dying inside, looking to drugs and sex and, and, and alcohol and country music for satisfaction, and they can't find it. In fact, most country songs are a result of that. That's why it's sinful. But contentment, contentment is found in Jesus. Let's turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 10. This is a great passage on contentment. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. And now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Meaning that this church in Philippi, they, they wanted to support Paul. They wanted to support the ministry of the saints, but they lacked the opportunity to do so. But they never forgot about Paul and they're, they're able to do so now. Verse 11, not that I speak from want, not that I'm desperate for your money, he says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I love that he says I learned. What does that imply? I didn't always know. He had to learn it. Do you think he learned it by reading a book? Maybe sitting down and listening to a lesson, a lecture, a sermon maybe. No, I think he had to learn in the school of hard knocks. He had to learn the hard way. But he learned the secret. He learned to be content. Verse 12, for I know how to get along with humble means. I know what it means to be poor. I know what it means to have very little. And that's true, right? I mean, he was shipwrecked. He was living on a deserted island for a while. But I think it was more than that. I think he went through extended periods of time where he didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. Living hand to mouth. But he also says, I've, I've learned to live in prosperity. It's not wrong to be poor. It's not wrong to be rich. The key is, have you learned to be content in both? And Paul learned to be content in both. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and growing hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things who, through him who strengthens me. So the key was Jesus. Is learning to find the contentment in him. That's what it was. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about the size of your bank account, the nice size of our home or what you were accomplishing. He was learning to trust Jesus. So in verse 19, it says, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God will look after us. God will provide. I remember when I, when I first uh, was, I was in ministry for a number of years and it was time for us to, to buy a house and, and uh, my parents were nice enough to give us uh, a down payment for that because we didn't have any, anywhere near close on our own because we were in ministry and, and living hand to mouth at many, many times. And uh, so it was time for us to fill out the mortgage. 
And the, the, the mortgage broker took, you know, what's your salary? And I said, well, my salary is based on support. It's based on giving people give and they support me. And that's how I get paid. And he's like, okay, well, that's different. So he, he goes to the, um, uh, to the mortgage broker, to the insurance, the mortgage person, the banker essentially. And he says, and this is their, they don't have a salary. They, they go off of giving and, and they just kind of depend on people to give each month. And he told me what the banker said was, that's crazy. Who lives that way? I <laughs> said, I agree for those online. It is crazy. But you know what? And this was, this was profound because this, this mortgage broker I was working with, I don't believe he's a Christian, but you know what he said? He says, we all do. Because at any given point, you lose your job. You could lose your money. Everything could disappear. We're all that precarious. And again, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Watching those banks fail this week is another reminder of how precarious each and every one of us is. But you know what? We've never missed a meal. Right? We've always had a place to sleep. We've always been able to pay our bills because God's always looked after us. And he's always been able to meet our needs and beyond that. And so when it comes to money, what you and I have is from God. It belongs to God. We're merely stewards of that money. Doesn't matter if you have little or if you have lots, money is not your God. Money doesn't protect you. Money doesn't provide for you. Money doesn't care for you. It doesn't comfort you. And it doesn't love you. Only God does that. Only God can fill your heart, not money. So instead of chasing after money, instead of basing your value and your worth based on how much you have or even how little you have or how much you're earning or how little you're earning, we need to look to Jesus and discover that he will provide all that we need. I want to close in Matthew chapter six. So if you want, you can turn to Matthew six and I think it's around, around verse 14, Jesus, or maybe verse 21, somewhere in Matthew 6. Jesus is talking about, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about things in this world. Now, he understands. He knows what it's like to live in this world, to live in a place where you do need money. For food, for shelter, for clothing, and so forth. And so he says to them, he says, look at the birds of the air. Look at, look at the lilies in the field. They don't worry about food. They don't worry about clothing. And yet God provides for them and he dresses them every single day. And if God's willing to look after the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, how much more will he love you? How much more will he care for you? How much more will he protect and provide for you? And so he says he knows you need all these things. So he's not pretending you don't. Again, it's not this vow of poverty. It's, no, it's, it's going to come and he's going to provide. Maybe through a job, maybe through, um, through a retirement plan, maybe through investments. It's not wrong to make money. It's not wrong to invest money. All that's fine. But all that is God's way of providing for us. And if it were to dry up, he'd find another way. Right? I mean, think about it. Right now, we go to the grocery store to get our food. But what if all the grocery stores in, the, in Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, they all closed overnight? Well, then we go to the farmer. And if all the farmers closed overnight, guess what God would do? He'd send food, maybe by the birds. Or maybe he'd, he'd uh, rain down food from heaven. Because he's done it in the past. 
right? Elijah's in the woods, and every day the sparrows brought him food. When the children of Israel for 40 years crossed the wilderness, God provided their food. He's the one. Not your job, not the grocery store, not the farmer. It's God. So he says he knows you need these things, and he's going to look after you. So what's our part? Well, our part's verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So the part we're to play is to seek after him, to trust him. Now, first it says, seek after the kingdom of God. That means get saved. That means put your faith in Jesus. So if you've done that, put a big check beside your name, right? It's always good to check things off on the to-do list, right? Check, good, done. Got saved. If you're not, let me tell you, today's the day. Today's the day. Starts there. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Not your righteousness, his the righteousness that he's given to you as a gift, the knowledge that, that we have a union with him, that we're one with him, that we're loved by him. Let that be your obsession. Let that be your goal. Let that be your focus. Chase after him and all the other things that you need will be added unto you. Those things will take care of itself. Just seek after him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the, the incredible truth that you are our provider, that you are our protector. You are the one that will comfort us. And it isn't about how much money we have or how little money we have. It isn't about how much we give away and how much we keep for ourselves. That's not the point. It's all about you. And I pray, Father, that we live in a world that is obsessed with money, Believing that money will lead to power, money will lead to fame, money will lead to love and acceptance. That we're obsessed with it. That instead, Lord Jesus, we'd be obsessed with you. That we would trust you and we would chase after you and we would know you and trust you. Because that's, that's where we'll find what we're looking for. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.